0: Typical ones is you're in a car and maybe you're by yourself and so you don't have to share in the embarrassment, but maybe you're with a friend or a loved one and you're just lost. And I can see the stories rolling through minds as I see some of the smiles and the fingers pointing and the elbows nudging. But one person inevitably says, we need to stop and ask for directions. Or probably more appropriately, this day and age of GPS is here. Let, let me pull out the GPS. Let me see where we are and where we're going. And the other one typically always says, and the other one is typically a guy. I, I acknowledge that. Always says, it's okay. I, I'll figure it out. I know where I'm going. Even if we have no clue where we're going, we'll, we'll figure it out. I don't need help. I, I, I don't need to ask for directions, whether it's a, a map, a person, or a GPS. Um, I've actually named my GPS Mindy, so I can say I, I don't need to ask Mindy. Have you ever run into someone and you knew them? You recognized the face, maybe even place where you met them, but you couldn't remember their name. Have you ever had those moments that they drive you crazy? And uh, you know, I've kind of uh, partly just been a pastor and really wanting to remember people's names and, and, and honor them in that. And I think it means a lot to someone when you can remember their name. There's always little tricks you can do. If you have someone with you, is always the best. We see it coming and say, hey, introduce yourself to them, because I don't remember their name, but I'm supposed to know them, and I, I know them, but I just can't remember the name. You know? So if you're ever with me and the person next to me is like, hi, I'm Joe, then <laughs> my secret's out. Um, but so many times in those situations, we refuse to humble ourselves and, and simply ask their name. We resort to some nondescript uh, terms like, hey, you, what's up, buddy? It's so good to see you. It's been a while. But a long while, so long I can't remember your name. You know, we, we don't go to that point of saying, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, give, give me your name one more time. We refuse to simply ask that question. Why, why do we fight asking questions? Why, why is that something that in certain circumstances, certain, circ- certain situations, we, we push back against? Well, I think some of the reason is a couple different things. One, to ask a question is an acknowledgement that I don't know. If I have to say, how do I get there? I'm also saying, I don't know where I am. Or I don't know how to get to where we're trying to get. It's an acknowledgement that there's something I don't know. Which for some may be an easy acknowledgement. For others, pride steps in and sin steps in. And it's like, no, we have a hard time coming to that place of asking a question. Especially depending on what it is we're asking the question about, right? If you're someone who's really good with directions, it's that much harder for you to ask for directions. Maybe even become known as like the human GPS and, you know, they always know where they're going. For that person, it's going to be really hard to stop and say, hey, can you help me figure out where I'm going? It's an acknowledgement that you don't know. It's also an acknowledgement that you need help. Because if you don't know, then you need some other input, some other uh, information in order to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to do. And so not only are you saying, I don't know, but you're saying, I need help in order to know. I need to resort to a map, to a person, to a, a GPS, or I, I need to ask the person their name, or I need to figure out some trick and, um, you know, to, to figure out what their name is. So we, we prefer to hide the fact that we don't know someone, that we don't know something. Sometimes in an unfamiliar conversation, we kind of flip through our mental files, and we we try to pick something out, like, okay, I I know something about this. We try to find the most intelligent, the smartest thing we can about a certain topic. So, for example, this is not not a true story, but it it could be true in my life. Um, But maybe you're out to a fancy dinner, right? And, And just one of those things where it's a big event, and you treat yourself and whoever you're with to a big fancy dinner, it's one of those places that has uh, someone who will come by and give you a, a wine suggestion for your meal. Sommelier is what they call them. Uh, if you know how to spell sommelier, uh, even with spell check, I still couldn't figure it out. So I do not know that. I need help. I'm asking how to spell sommelier. Just the theme of asking questions here. So you had a fancy dinner, and the sommelier comes over, and, and they begin to uh, suggest some possible red wines for your steak dinner that you're having. say, okay, well, I'd recommend this one. I'd recommend that one. And they go through this whole spiel. You should try the house wine. You should try this one. It's aged 23 billion years um, I don't know anything about wine. And all of a sudden, they leave the table, and there's still kind of this conversation about wine going on. And, and in this situation, you, don't, you know nothing about it. And so you go through that mental file, that mental Rolodex, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, did you know that wine also comes in a white? I mean, it's, it's, it's the simplest, dumbest thing you could say, but it's all you got. I think we see this in time, time, and time again, where we're in a conversation, and in simp- instead of asking a question or, or trying to learn more about something, we try to find the one thing that we can connect in with and say, oh, I know something about wines. There's red and there's white. And Sometimes we really kind of just show our, our foolishness in that. Because we, we don't like to ask questions sometimes. We fight against it. But see, we're better off. We're better off when we ask questions. When we say, I don't know, it can be the next step to gaining knowledge. When we say, I need help, It can be the next step to overcoming obstacles in our lives. It is good to ask questions. See, when we do, we grow, we learn, we change for the better. You see this in our children all the time. If you have little kids in your home or if you're around little kids ever, you probably get all these different questions. What are you doing? You answer the question, why? Will you share the why? Well, why? You share that why. Why? It's a never-ending stream of questions. What is that? What is that? What does that do? Why is that there? One question leads to another, which leads to another. There's this thirst for knowledge, and they just want to know more about their world. At some point, we lose that passion. But it is good to ask questions. And that is the heart behind the series that we're in right now called Glad You Asked. See, last week we started with this question, how can the Father and the Son both be God? And we talked a little bit about the doctrine of the Trinity, where we have three in one. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, who are all God, even though the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and and vice versa, but they are all God. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, We also talked about how it's similar to marriage. Marriage is an example of the Trinity in the sense that to become one in marriage. You're still the husband, you're still the wife, but you're also one. And so you still have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but they are one. And I, I kind of gave a teaser last week that this metaphor of marriage is actually a metaphor for Christ and the church. Or, or marriage is a picture of how Christ and the church interact. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5. And that's kind of what we're going to be unpacking here today. What does it mean for the church to be the bride? of christ you see just like last week i encourage you to lean in as if this was your question you may have heard me look at this question and be like you know what i got it covered either a i've never really wondered that question and even after hearing it, i'm still not really sure that it's a question i would have or b i know the answer and i'm all good if you're in that position i still would encourage you to lean in as if this was your very question In doing so, my hope and my prayer is that you'd be encouraged and strengthened in in your current understanding. Maybe you'd even learn something new that would solidify your understanding about what it means for the church to be the bride of Christ. But also this, maybe there's someone else in your life who's asking questions like this. And and by leaning in this morning and, and really engaging with what we're talking about, you can help them take some next steps in their life. Also, we'll kind of stop along the way each week that we're going through this series. And kind of maybe, you know, think about a journey, a road trip. You pull over and you have those scenic outlooks. And so maybe it's not the destination, it's not where you're going, but it's worth stopping and taking a look. And so we may have some moments like that along the way. So our question this morning that we're seeking to answer, the question that I'm glad you asked, is what does it mean for the church to be the Bride of Christ? Well, first we have to talk about what do we mean when we say the church? Is it the building? Is it the structure? Or is it the body? Well, in this case, we're talking about the people. See, the, the, the term church is always meant to refer to the people. If you go back to the Greek word, it comes from, it's from ecclesia, the, the gathering. And yet somehow in our history that began to all of a sudden be the term to define a structure and a building. That's not what you see in in Scripture. You see it's referring to the people, to those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And and when they do that, it leads to being made righteous through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and and to living eternally with God in heaven. And We see that playing out in our lives where as the church, those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, that we live a life of loving God and loving others. The church is the bride. Well, if the church is the bride, then who is the bridegroom? Well, it's Jesus. Church is the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. This is where we want to do our, our first pit stop on the road to an answer for this question and, and just address a little scenic outlook. Um, man, I'm, I'm going to speak to you first here, um, or specifically in this moment. Uh, this question was asked to me, and then it was said, Hey, do you as a man ever feel weird about this analogy of being a bride? And I thought about it for a second, I said, okay, initially when I was younger in my faith, it just seemed odd to me. It was never like, ooh, weird, it was just kind of like, okay, well, I'm not sure how to relate to that, it's a feminine term in bride, and I'm a guy, so how do I connect with that? But as I began to understand what it means, and the implications of it, and the teaching and meaning of it, I quickly got over that. But another quick aside to that, see, in perspective, man, if this is something that, that, that's a struggle for you, you can't even hear anything else because all you're sitting here is, Steve's calling me a bride. You know, if that's a big issue for you, we've got to step back and put this in perspective because there are far more challenging verses that the women in our lives have to wrestle through and struggle through. Uh, uh, verses that have been disputed throughout uh, uh, Christendom. And we still don't have resolution on, we still don't have unity on, it. have led to all kinds of, of division in churches. Uh, verses like 1 Timothy 2.12, where, where Paul has this one line where he's talking about, I, I do not permit a woman to teach, and again, it's not saying that in and of itself, there's all kinds of context around that, and some would say that means they can't have any teaching role in the church, and some would say that was to that specific church in that specific time, and it doesn't have any bearing uh, on the rest of the churches. But regardless, the verse is there, and we have to do something with it, and that's a challenging verse to overcome. Ephesians 5, I've already referenced, talks about issues of submission and issues of headship, when in and of themselves, uh, without sin entering the picture, are beautiful things, but our, our history, our culture has taken that and distorted that, and so these concepts of, of headship, these concepts of, of submission, no longer carry uh, that beauty, and uh, they have a connotation of some negative feelings, and so there there's some verses that I believe are, are, are challenging Uh, for for women. And and so men, if this is one of the first verses, you're like, I'm not sure. Uh, Honestly, I think we need to move past that quickly. In in perspective, we we need to move move along. If you're a man who's truly struggling with this analogy of being the bride, here's my advice to you. Uh, First, go and do something manly. Okay, just get, the, get it out of your system. If you're a hunter, go, go hunt something. If you're a fisherman, go fish something. If you're a builder, go build something. Uh, if none of those apply, go eat something. Uh, preferably bacon, and, and then you know, do something manly. And um, when, when a little bit falls in your beard or on your shirt, leave it there for lunch. I mean, that, that, that's the next, you know, okay, so you're all good on that. And when that's done, let's go home and, and put on our work pants, okay? Put on some work pants, whatever yours look like, whatever they are, and, and let's get to work. Let's get to the work of understanding what it means to be the bride of Christ. Because as we understand that, I think we quickly forget about that, that maybe the, the oddity of that uh, analogy. Well, let's come to a place where we can both understand and live in the reality of what it means to be the bride of Christ. And it's, it's an invitation for all of us here this morning, male and female, that we would come to a place of understanding this analogy and then living in the reality of that. Living in the implications of that. So see, this is an imagery that you see throughout the pages of, of Scripture. We can go to John chapter 3, where, where John has already uh, pointed out, here's Jesus, the, you know, the Messiah who's come, and uh, someone points out to John, oh, by the way, John, people are going to Jesus now to get baptized. I mean, how, how does that make you feel? You, you're John the Baptist, and, and they're not coming to you anymore, they're going to Jesus. And, and John responds like, awesome, rejoice in the Lord, that he's the Messiah. You know, I'm but a friend of the the bridegroom. I'm pointing to him. I'm celebrating with him. And so he's like, it's no big deal to me. He's the one that I'm here for. He's the one that this is all about. And so he uses this imagery of a friend at a wedding and how they'd celebrate it with their friend who's getting married. They would celebrate with the bridegroom. And so we begin to see this analogy, this imagery playing out in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, some people are, are questioning Jesus about his disciples. Uh, there, there were some customary times of fasting that they were not doing. Like, hey, hey, Jesus, how come your disciples aren't, aren't fasting in these times? And he basically, again, builds off this analogy. Hey, if you were at the wedding celebration, if the, if the bridegroom uh, is, is present, would you, would you fast or would you feast? You would feast and celebrate that. That would be an awesome thing. And so that is why my disciples don't fast at this point in time is because I am with them. It's a time to celebrate, a time to feast, not a time to fast. So again, we see this imagery of the bridegroom uh, as Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's speaking to the church there in Corinth. In essence, he's, he's saying how he's betrothed them to Jesus, her groom. The, the, the church is the bride and, and Jesus is the groom. He, he's acting at a, as a sort of a spiritual father. Uh, giving permission or giving his blessing uh, on his daughter to be married to a man. His daughter, the church that he helped plant there and build there in Corinth, that he's then saying, okay, here is your groom, Jesus. We also see in Revelation 19 and 21. In 19, we see uh, the literal marriage of the lamb has finally come. But there's this point where, okay, all all this uh, engagement talk, all all this groom and uh, bride Conversation leads to the the wedding of the Lamb of God that we see in Revelations 19. In Revelation 21, we see this phrase, uh, the people of a new Jerusalem. So again, it it says, talking about the city, but it's referring to the people of the city. In the same way we would say Meadowland Church, you could say this is where we meet, this is the structure we meet in, but it's referring to the people. So uh, referring to the people of New Jerusalem, uh, they're referred to as the bride and that they eternally dwell with God. And those are just a handful, there's other ones out there, but I want you to see that there's this this continuing imagery of us as the the, the bride, and Jesus as our bridegroom. So in in order to fully understand this, I think we need to better understand and know the cultural picture of marriage, when this allegory was kind of first made. And so we need to know, what is the Jewish marriage process? It's different than ours today, it's very different than ours today. See, once a couple decided that they wanted to get married, here's what would happen. First thing is there needs to be a gift exchange. There needs to be a gift exchange. Basically, the the groom would leave his home and he would bring a dowry. And if you don't know what a dowry is, I was trying to figure out a way to explain a dowry that doesn't sound like you're paying for your bride. It's kind of weird that way. But a dowry is a gift. It'd be a mix a lot of times, of both money and some kind of a tangible gift that you then bring to the bride-to-be and her family as an offering to say, here, I give you this. I'm asking for her hand in marriage. There's all kinds of reasons in each culture as to the why behind that. But that's how it begin. When a couple decides they want to get married, that the groom would leave his home and go to the bride's home and, and she'd be there and her family be there. He would offer this dowry and basically ask for her hand in marriage because of this gift. And if the bride agrees and if the families are all on board with this, basically they enter into a legal binding contract. That's the next step. They, they would enter into a binding contract that would be signed and the couple would be seen as married, the way they would refer to it as Engaged. So their engagement is very different than our engagement. Very different. And so they'd be seen as married, but not yet consummated, uh, They'd be engaged. We see this in Scripture, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, when Joseph and Mary um, you know, find out, basically, you know, Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, and he says he plans to divorce her quietly. And if you're really paying attention to the text, you say, well, hang on, they're not married yet. They're, they're engaged to be married, so why would he even need to divorce her? Well, it's because in that culture, engagement was a legal contract. It was a binding thing. And so that's the, the next step. They'd enter into this binding contract. And then there'd be a, a time apart from one another before the wedding. And this is where, it's one of those things where, where every wedding has similarities in our culture, but every wedding is also a, a little bit different. And so there would be different differences between different people's weddings and how it all play out. But there would be a time, whether it be uh, on the short end a week, on the long end a year, there'd be a time where the bride and the bridegroom would be separate that they wouldn't be with each other, they wouldn't see each other. Commonly, the reason for this is the bridegroom would have left to go prepare the home for their new family, to prepare a place to be together with him and, and his bride. And that would be part of what would take place in that time. And so uh, it would also sweeten then that final time of coming together uh, for marriage. When, if they have not seen each other for a while, they would come together and be wed. So there's a time of being apart. The fourth step, um, there'd be a time commonly unknown to the bride where the the groom would return. He would return, return's the key here. A lot of times it'd be with with a loud shout or even trumpets playing. Uh, The groom would, would come with his friends and they would have a parade of lights that would come down through the streets at midnight. And the bride and her friends who had been waiting for this, not knowing when it would come specifically, but knowing it was coming at some point, would have been in wait for this. And they would have then uh, gone out into the streets, brought their lights, and, and, and joined together with the, the, this parade of lights. And then from that, the couple would be joined together. Together is the key here in the fifth step. They'd be joined together as husband and wife, through a small ceremony, be followed by then the consummation of the marriage and the celebration of that as well. And so you can see that there's a very different process than we're used to in our day and age, Uh, but that is what a typical Jewish marriage process would have looked like in the days that Jesus walked the earth. And so let's look at the person of Jesus, because uh, if the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, Okay, well, is there some connection here? He's building on this imagery of marriage, of this wedding process. Okay, so we understand the marriage process of that day and age, of that time. Well, how does that apply to Jesus? Well, I think the more we look at this, we'll see that Jesus truly fulfills the role of the bridegroom. First of all, the gift. Jesus lays down his life for his bride. We see that in Ephesians 5 as uh, Jesus talking about how a husband and a wife ought ought to live together and what some of those roles are and what they're called to do and how the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He laid down his life in service to his bride. And so the, the gift that we receive from Jesus as his bride is that he lays his life down on the cross for us. He left his home in heaven and came to us, his, his bride, the church. And we're invited to receive this gift. If you've never taken this step in your life where you've said, Jesus, I acknowledge that, that, that I have sin in my life. where right? Sin is basically what Scripture would call going against the will of God. If you've never taken that step, you say, acknowledging that, then say, I believe, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior, which means the leader of my life and the forgiver of my sins. I believe that you are God. Your death on the cross paid the price for my sins, and I receive that gift. You have an invitation to do that here today. To say, yes, I do acknowledge God, that Jesus is God, and that his death on the cross paid my price. It would be the same way as receiving that dowry that would then enter into this binding contract. In the same way you say, okay, you've given me this gift, and yes, I, I agree to the terms, let's get married, and you would sign that contract. There is a binding contract, a promise from God. It's something that we've, we've received, but not yet fully. It's kind of this already, but not yet principle. Christ has already come, died on the cross. We've already received this gift of salvation, of forgiveness, of freedom from sin, but he's not yet come again uh, to completely wipe sin out. But there's this binding contract that we will be with him in heaven for eternity. That he will come back. One of the ways we see this is how the Holy Spirit uh, is a seal upon the hearts of all those who believe. Ephesians chapter one, verse thirteen to fourteen, tell us this. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so you heard it and you believed. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Basically what the saying is until we're in heaven with God, the Holy Spirit is our seal, is our promise, is our binding contract of marriage through Jesus. Okay? So we hear the truth of Jesus. We believe in him as that reception of the gift and then we have this seal of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit would dwell inside of us until uh, we are in heaven with God. And so we have the gift, we have the binding contract, we have a time apart from Jesus. After he goes to the cross, goes to the grave, ascends, then comes back from the dead, overcomes death. We have the empty tomb. For about 40 days he appears to his disciples and to others, and then he ascends into heaven he even says, hey, don't, don't go anywhere yet. Don't leave town because the Holy Spirit's coming and, and, and he'll uh, be with you and he'll help you through this world. But I'm going to go to be with the Father. And so this, this is a time apart from Jesus physically. And, and why did he go? Well, we, we kind of covered this in one of our earlier seri- uh, series, one of our earlier weeks in our Jesus Is series. John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Do you see some of this imagery continuing? So he's leaving to go and prepare a place for us. In the same way that the groom would go leave to go prepare a place for him and his wife, his wife-to-be. And so there's this time apart, but if we keep on reading from John 14, 2 into verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Where I, where I am, you may be also so I will come again, that's the return, he'll come again, there's going to be a return, a second coming of Jesus, and then he'll take us to himself, we'll be together with him, just like the bride and the groom would be. And so we can see how really the gospel, is this picture, uh, has the same imagery of a Jewish wedding process. But see, we're still in the middle of the story, Right? So we know what the gift is, we we know the binding contract of the Holy Spirit, we know Jesus has ascended into heaven, we're apart from him physically right now, Uh, but we haven't gotten to the return part. He hasn't returned yet uh, to call his bride to himself and to go and be wed and to be together forever, right? That part hasn't happened. So that's where we are in the story. So if that's where we are, what are we supposed to do as the church? So if we've gained a greater understanding of what it means for the church to be the, the bride And Jesus to be the bridegroom, what are we supposed to do then? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew 25. This is where we're going to finish out our morning. Matthew 25, we're going to be starting verse 1. Uh, if you need a Bible uh, to call your own, please take one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take one for them as well. Feel free to make notes and highlight things that stand out and circle things they have questions about and, and you, know, you can follow up with later uh, with anyone uh, in your life you think what would be able to help you find that answer. Um, But yeah, take one, make it your own. If you want to go digital, we have free Wi-Fi in the building for that sole purpose of being able to uh, get online and and use a digital Bible as well. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. If if you've heard this parable before, I think now that we have a, a greater understanding of Uh, not only a a Jewish wedding, what that looks like, that marriage process, but what it means for Jesus to be the bride of Christ, I think this parable will will have a new life to it for you. So Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. If you ever wondered why in the world do they have lamps, well, now we kind of understand. Because when the bridegroom enters, he calls his bride, and what, what, what does the bride do? She takes the lamp and she goes out to this parade of lights that's happening at midnight and joins with him. And so in essence it's saying that the kingdom of of heaven is like a bride who's going out to meet up with her groom to be together. The groom has returned and and the bride is going to meet with him. The parable continues in verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks, of oil with their lamps as the bridegroom was delayed they all became drowsy and slept but at midnight there was a cry he here is the bridegroom come out to meet him then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps and so Basically, we have this kind of uh, uh, preemptive, hey, he's coming. He, not now's the time he's coming. And so they all rush out and they bring their lamps. All ten of them have their lamps. Five are, are seen as wise and, and uh, five are seen as foolish. Uh, I think as we look at the verse, we look at the context, um, I, I don't think there's any significance in, in the fact that it's five and five for a total of ten, except for the fact of saying, hey, some were ready and some weren't. And so uh, they, they all bring their lamps. Some have oil and some don't. Um, but it, it takes longer than they expected. Okay, the bridegroom is delayed, and so all of a sudden, we hear this cry, you know, hey, he's coming, he's coming, and they, they'd fallen asleep uh, in the meantime. Hey, they're tired, so they took a nap. Hey, okay, he's coming, he's coming. Now's the time. Light the lamps, get things fired up. And the five who had that oil, well, they were able to light their lamps. Let's see what happens with the rest. And the foolish said to the wise, this is verse 8, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Now at first glance, this may seem kind of selfish, right? Well, you got extra oil, let, let us have some. But look at what it says there. Since there will not be enough for us and for you. They couldn't give it because there wouldn't be enough for the both of them. In essence, they're saying, hey, the five of us have oil to go and meet with the bridegroom. If we give some to you, then no one's going to go get to meet with the bridegroom. There isn't enough. But see, this is about more than just oil. This isn't a parable about sharing, about generosity. Uh, There's more to it than that. If we keep on reading, I think we get some insight to it here. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. See, as we begin to unpack this, this response of truly, truly, I say, I, I don't know you. That there was no relationship that they had with the bridegroom. And so while they were ready, that they, they come out with the lamps and say, all right, we want to go and and... and Join in this, this parade of lights and, and be with the bridegroom? Because I, I don't know you. Uh, there, there was no relationship they, they had with Jesus. So th- this isn't about sharing, about generosity, about, you know, hey, making sure you have enough oil for yourself and the person next to you. This is about faith. That the five ha- ha- had a relationship through faith with the bridegroom. And the other five, he didn't even know them. He didn't even know them. So what, what can we infer from this? We see that the wise were in relationship with the bridegroom, and so when he came, they joined in that parade of, of lights, and they entered into the celebration with him. The foolish went through those same motions, and they had the lamps, and they, they went through all the same stuff, but they didn't have the oil. They, they didn't have a, a relationship. There's there no fire. See, we, we can't join together with the bridegroom off of someone else's faith. This is something I saw for myself growing up, and through for a lot of my peers. Um, you know, when I was younger, if you asked me, hey, you know, wh- what are your beliefs? I would say, well, I'm Lutheran. Well, why? why are you Lutheran? Well, my parents are Lutheran. That's just you know how I was raised, and that's what they are, so that, that's what I am. And for a long time, I was just kind of living off my parents' faith, my, my, where my parents were spiritually. Uh, but there came a point where. I, I had to enter into a a relationship with Jesus personally, through myself, me and Jesus, not through me, but by by his grace. So we can't join together with the bridegroom off of someone else's faith. Maybe you're in a marriage or one of you is is, is passionately and actively pursuing God in a relationship with you, and the other one's like, hey, my, my wife is saved, so I'm good. My husband's saved, so I'm good. You know, what God has put together, let no man separate, right? So God's not gonna separate us. It doesn't work that way. We need to have our own relationship with Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And, and here's kind of what that can look like. And, and again, everyone's walk is a little differently. Uh, this is one of those things where uh, when we, we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that there goes through a process where we begin to surrender our will to his. And sometimes this takes time and there's some areas where we can do it right away and other times it's up where the Lord just continues to work on us and, and eventually come to a place where we can public, publicly proclaim our trust in him through baptism we can take this first step of obedience and continue to see our lives refined to see our lives change and we begin to bear the fruit of pursuing jesus if you went to a tree in your backyard and you said hey i wonder what kind of tree this is and all of a sudden you looked up and you saw pears hanging on the tree what kind of tree do you think it is it's probably a pear tree you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears and so, someone who who has surrendered their lives to Jesus and and, and walking with Him, there should be a sign of, of fruit in our lives. Now we need to be careful not to get legalistic about this, not to say, okay, here's a checklist of things that you have to do, and if you haven't done them, you know, you're, not, you're not a believer. Because we already saw that it's about that you believe, uh, you hear about jesus and you believe that he is god and, and trust in him okay there's this seal upon your life but see if this is truly taking place these are the kind of things that naturally pour out of that that growing things change that jesus does a work in us and we bring about growth and fruit in our lives so what are we to do until the bridegroom until jesus returns i think a couple of things we can see from this first of all we need to plan for today we need to plan for today Are we ready? Do we have our lamp? Are we watching? Have we trusted in Jesus for salvation by grace through faith? This free gift that's been given us. Through faith, we can trust in Jesus that his sacrifice is sufficient to pay the price for our mistakes and for our sins. Like I said, if that's a step you've never taken in your life, there's no trick to it. There's no magic saying you have to say, there's no secret handshake. I keep asking the elders to get one, but they keep shooting me down. All it takes is trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and surrendering your life to him. Are you ready? Have you done that? If he were to come today, in essence, that's part of what he's asking here. If he were to come today, would he know you? Are you in relationship with Jesus? And for some of you say, hey, I think I am. You know, I've begun this process. It doesn't say anything about to what extent. It's not like, hey, have you, been, have you known me for five years, 10 years, 20 years? No. If we today, on this day, say, Jesus, I trust in you as my Lord and Savior, begins a relationship that lasts through all, all of eternity so that when the bridegroom, when Jesus returns, we go and meet with him, we'll be known by him because we're in a relationship with him. So are you ready? Are you actively waiting we see that the, uh, the, the, the ten ladies go out to meet with him and there's still kind of this continuation of life, right? they got the, the word, hey, he's coming. You know, we haven't got the big proclamation yet. He's not here yet, but he's coming. What do they do? They go out and then, okay, he's get, gotten delayed a little bit. So they kind of, you know, some typical parts of life. They get tired and they sleep. And, and so there's this continuation of, of life that happens uh, until he comes. And in essence, it's this heart of not putting off for tomorrow what we can surrender today not putting off for tomorrow, we can surrender today. I intentionally didn't say what we can do today. Because yes, while there there is a sense of of responsibility to to use the things that God's given us, our our life, our time, our our, our gifts, our abilities uh, for his glory, I want us first to focus on a life of surrender, a life that says, all right, God, your way over mine. Are there ways that we're not surrendering to him? Let us plan for today. Be ready for the bridegroom by not putting off tomorrow what we can surrender to God today. If there's an area in your life where you're walking away from God and it keeps coming up, that's not coincidence. That's God trying to get your attention. Is there something that we need to, a step we need to take to surrender to God, to surrender to His will over our own? So we need a plan for today. We need a plan for our tomorrows. We need a plan for for our tomorrows, a time is coming where Jesus will return and take His bride, the church, to Himself. And what's interesting is our culture right now has a fascination with end times, a fascination with the apocalypse, and when's it going to happen? And I can whatever your your mindset is of how you think it might happen, all that raises this question of all you: Are you ready? It's the, the point where you have this thing called preppers, people who are spending all this time and energy preparing for chaos, preparing for the end of the world. And they all have different ways they do it. Some of them pack these bags, they call them go bags, where they have all these supplies you would need to be able to live out off the land or, or live on your own and, and be on the run. And they have this bag packed up and it's sitting somewhere in their home. They can quickly run and grab that back and go. They never engage the bag. they never do anything with it. It's just there ready in case they, you know something happens uh, they need to go and, and and get some stuff done. But you have other people who say, hey, um, I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to build up walls and defenses. I'm going to make sure I have stockpiles of food and supplies to endure through this all. But see, we need to pause for a second and say, what does what do end times look like for the believer? What, what would it look like for us to prepare for the return of the bridegroom? Are we preparing for life in this world or are we preparing for life in heaven. If we're going to prepare for this world, we have a heart of I want to get the most out of each day before it's gone. Again, if this is secondary to what we're about to talk about, not the end of the not, the, not a terrible thing to say. Hey, I want to maximize these days that God's given me here on earth. But if that's our primary motivation, then we've missed the boat because as the church, we're to prepare for heaven. We're to point to Jesus as much as we can before these days are gone. Before the bridegroom comes, we're supposed to say, "Hey, he, he's coming. Are you ready? Do you have your lamp? Do you have your oil? Are you ready to go? Are we taking opportunities in our lives to point people to Jesus? I want to close out here in second, Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8 through 9 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Since the time of the disciples, people have said, hey, we're living in the end times. And they're right. They're right, the bridegroom is coming. So these are the end times. The next step is his return. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I don't know. The end of Matthew 25, verse 13, he said, hey, you don't know the hour. We, We don't know when it's coming. We just know it's coming. And so let's plan for today and plan for our tomorrows because the bridegroom is coming. Let's pray.